to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, your host this week. And as usual, I'm joined by my delightful co-host, Dr. Lee Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. This week, we're going to be talking about... Um, Oh, crap. Memory. Oh, memory. Yeah, right. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> it was low-hanging fruit, but I just had to pick it. <laughs> like a nose. Just couldn't resist. <laughs> As usual, Noelle is looking over here, and she wants to take your drink orders, and she doesn't want to hear, but I want to hear what you're ranting and raving about. So, Charles, let's start with you. What are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about? Well, for this, the early morning, we're still at the bar session because we never left from last night. I'm going to have a screwdriver. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and because I deserve to be punished, I'm just going to go with well liquor and the cheapest Tropicana orange juice you can imagine because <laughs> I, I don't deserve better. <laughs> yeah, anything in a plastic bottle. That's what I want because we don't have enough rants about Florida. I think we're slacking in terms of our criticisms of social policy in Florida. My rant is Governor DeSantis of Florida. A few weeks ago, Governor DeSantis, in announcing what appeared to be a youth job program, walked into a press conference, and there's a line of young people with masks on, and he berates and bullies and intimidates them in front of all of the newspaper people, all of the camera, and they begin to slowly take their masks off. And I thought this was a horrible and ghoulish thing to serve his dumbass political agenda of COVID denial. And I felt so bad for these young people intimidated by the governor of their state in front of the entire press corps. I hope their parents are raising holy hell. So my rant this week is the boorish behavior of Governor DeSantis of Florida. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. You're not gonna hear any complaints from me ranting about Florida. <laughs> <laughs> my rave is this great book that I've just been reading with a student, Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity by Jose Esteban Munoz. A student of mine, we're doing a private reading. The student introduced it to me. They are a brilliant student, and I'm so thankful to them for doing this, and I'm having the most amazing time reading the thoughts of Munoz. I'm reading the 10th anniversary edition, which has a fantastic intro. So that's my rave. Cruising Utopia, the then and there of queer futurity. Nice. Lee, what are you drinking? I'm going to stick with my usual, a Fireball and Diet Coke. This week, I am ranting about the first days of spring. What? Maybe I'm giving you a window into my dark psychology here, but there's something about the first few days of spring, and I don't know what it is. There's a smell in the air. There's a kind of way that the birds chirp. There's a kind of way that the sunlight <laughs> falls through my window in the morning. But it causes me extreme anxiety. And, oh, no. you know, this has been true for years and years and years. And the only way that I can explain it, and I think this is probably true, is that I've lived almost my entire life on an academic calendar. Mm -hmm. And so the beginning of spring makes me feel like, oh, my God, there's a lot of stuff that's about to be due in prior phases of my life. It was like I'm about to have no money for a few months. <laughs> you know? So it just really causes me a lot of anxiety. And we're about at that time of year. And I can feel that anxiety starting to creep into my life. So. Uh, sorry. However, this week I am raving about Westside Elementary School. I think that's in Headsburg, California. Their pep talk program. Hey! 
It's a public art project by the students in this elementary school, and it's titled Pep Talk, P-E-P-T-O-C. But what it actually is is a phone number that you can call and get a pep talk, T-A-L-K, from elementary school students. You know, you call in and it says, are you feeling angry or frustrated or upset? Press one. Are you feeling like you need encouraging words? Press two. Are you feeling like you just want to hear children laughing? Press three. Bilingual, English and Spanish. And you press one of these and you get a pep talk. And I just want to play an example of what you get if you press one. When you're feeling mad, you should take three deep breaths and think of things that make you happy. The thing that makes me happy is when think of happy things will happen in the future, like going to a friend's house or a cousin's house. If you're sad or angry, go get a cookie or an ice cream. If you're frustrated, you can always go to your bedroom, punch a pillow or cry on it, and just go scream outside. I mean, like, that is, like, legitimately good advice in my experience. Although that first one, I think they need to call the number for anxiety. Holy cow. (laughs) So, listeners, if you are having a bad day and if you are interested in this, you can actually call this number, 707-998-8410, and it will connect you to this public art project by, again, Westside Elementary School. That's called Pep Talk. And way to go, kids. The world needs you. And we'll have that phone number in the show notes if you didn't write it down. What about you, Rick? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? So yesterday in Chicago was 40 degrees and today it's going to be close to 70. So I'm somewhere between winter and spring. So I'm going to have a whiskey sour. It's a little Mm. winter. It's a little spring. (laughs) Yeah, I'm drinking a whiskey sour. That's not so fancy. My rant this week is is associate provosts. (laughs) So our dean has been getting a lot of pressure from our central administration to cut down on the number of teaching reductions that he's allowed to give when we do major service things like chairing the department or directing our graduate program or, you know, things like this. And this demand to reduce the teaching reductions comes from a group of idiots who, first of all, don't teach at all. And secondly, they couldn't teach their way out of a paper bag, even if we wet it down for them. (laughs) That's why they're only associates. (laughs) Well, they've risen to the level of their incompetence. (laughs) My rave this week, this is a little bit delayed, but I never caught it, is the, I think it was a BBC, but I I caught it through PBS and then BritBox, the British series Grantchester. So this is a series that takes place in England in the 50s, and it's a small village vicar who also helps solve mysteries. As vicars do. As well, Father Brown, <laughs> uh, another one. I love one. Father Brown, yeah. Yeah, but it's not just a procedural. It also is part police procedural and part soap opera. Mm. And it's really interesting. It's incredibly warm. And yet it also struggles with some really serious issues. He has another Anglican priest in the vicarage living with him who is gay and the struggles with that in relation to the Church of England and the 50s and so on. It's all really interesting. And he also finds himself frequently in a bar. 
So I think it's the perfect <laughs> series for us. So Charles, you're in the hot seat. I know we're talking about memory, but what did you have in mind? I'm really interested in talking about memory today because of A, my own grappling with it as I age and I feel like there are things that I'm starting to forget. I don't know, like basic nouns. <laughs> What's that thing? Four legs, horizontal, you place the, oh, table, thank you. But I also think about it because as we're entering an age where those who love us and have taken care of us are aging, it's beginning to see where memory or the diminishment of memory and how it's affecting and how it informs or deforms, if you will, them is, is a major concern. But I also want to think about memory and the role of memory as a part of a larger communal or group consciousness, collective memories, and the place that they have within contemporary society. And as usual, because I do aesthetics, I would also like to talk about memory and the place that it has in popular cultural discourse. <laughs> Charles, it seems like you kind of laid out a few general areas in which memory is functioning in a really significant way. And I'd like to start with what I heard was maybe the first one, namely that memory seems to be related to who each of us is. I cannot imagine who I am without that being constituted by memory. Well, it's interesting because of the primary questions that one may get in social or interpersonal circumstance, there's always, you know, what's your first memory? And it's curious to me, why is that important? What exactly is the person searching for when they ask you, what is your first memory? Is it a trying to figure out what is your earliest level of self-awareness? Or based upon what you remember, does it speak to something about the nature of one's childhood? Does it speak to some fundamental building block of your character? Is your first memory a terrible one? Is your first memory a really positive one? And I want to think about, well, why is that an important question? What is the ask of that question seeking? And why are we so invested in being able to label what well, this is my first memory and this is what it means to me? I don't know if this is unusual or not, but I don't have early memory. You know, I, I feel like people will say, like, I remember things when they were one or two or three. And I have a hard time remembering what city I lived in when I was in fourth grade. But I do think that you're right, that memory is essential to the constitution of our identities. So what's interesting to me is that I can't name my first memory, so it doesn't stick out as being the first thing I remember. And I'm not aware of when I first started remembering things. Although everyone in my family tells me I remember almost everything. You know, one of my mom's constant refrains is like, how do you remember that? <laughs> and so, like, I do have a lot of memories. What's interesting to me, though, Charles, is that you seem to be pointing out the role of memory in the constitution of the self in a more or less conscious way. That is, I'm aware of it. But then there's obviously the unconscious way in which I might not be aware that I remember but my behavior shows that I'm remembering something that I'm not aware that I'm remembering. No, and that's exactly what makes this really interesting and complex for me. You know, what is your earliest memory? Maybe a different sort of question from when do you become aware of being able to remember? That latter question sort of predates the former question. Because it has to, if we think about recognition on the part of infants and how they can begin to recognize faces, people around them, parents, even, I guess, smells. Can, can we talk about sense memory at that level for an infant? But I'm very much vested in this idea of memory as a way to construct one's relationship to others and one's sense of self. Because I can think about my earliest memories 
one of which is, I think I was like two or three years old, and I tripped on my grandmother's front step and broke out like two front teeth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I don't know if this is me, in hindsight, crafting it, because that's the thing, too. How do we manipulate? How do we sort of inform or let memories inform us? I feel like that says something about my relationship to my extended family, that event. Mm. But I don't know if that's the reality or what degree that moves and changes and grows as I perceive myself or conceive myself differently over time. Yeah, so memory is so phenomenologically complex, right? Is it possible to remember without knowing that I'm remembering? Is the memory just knowing that I remember? Is it crucial that to call it a memory that I'm aware that this is a memory? So in order to get at this, let me start in kind of a tangential way. A computer has a memory. We call it, you know, memory, and it has random access memory, and it has memory that it reads from. And the computer records every bit that is input and computed by the computer. Every single thing is recorded with exactitude. But our brains can't record every single thing. And so the very act of remembering has to already be a filtering. And I find that process really interesting, the process of filtering. I also do. And if I could kind of join what Rick just said to Charles's earlier point about memory being a social project, I think that we rely a lot on other people's memories to fill in the holes that our memory filtered out. There was this 18th century philosopher, Thomas Reed, who proposed yeah. what he called the brave officer thought experiment. Says, suppose that a young lieutenant can re remember what he did as a child, and then the lieutenant is later promoted to a general. We're assuming that you know something happens, like he has some kind of war injury that affects his memory. And so the later general can remember what the lieutenant did, but not what the child did. If we basically ascribe to Locke's continuity of memory being the basis of identity, then it would seem as if the lieutenant was the same person as the child and the general was the same person as the lieutenant, but the general was not the same person as the child. Is everybody following mm. me so far? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. Reed sort of fills this out and says, but maybe the general can't remember what he did as a child, but the general's mom and the general's sisters and the general's friends remember that there's a connection between the child, the lieutenant, and the general that can kind of fill in that continuity of identity between them such that I think we could easily imagine, right, that the general is like, well, yeah, I, there are these gaps in my memory, but I live in this community where the ancestral or communal memory fills this out for me. As I said before, I don't remember a lot of things about when I was a child, but there are stories that have been told to me so often that mm. they feel like my memories. Like my parents tell this story about when I was four years old. They went out in the backyard and I was playing with my friends and I apparently had them all sitting in a semicircle and was explaining the rules of some game that I had made up, right? <laughs> That's, that feels familiar. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that tracks. That tracks. So I, of course, have no memory of actually doing that, but I've heard this story so often that it has become a part of my identity. It's as if I can remember it. I also have a younger sister who is seven years younger than me, and I have a younger brother who is three years younger than me. And I remember when my sister was a child, my brother and I and my parents would be talking about something that happened before she was born. And she would say, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And of course she didn't remember it, right? Because she wasn't alive yet. 
But, uh, you know, I live in a storytelling family and she had heard it often enough that it makes me wonder if she did actually think that she remembered that. I mean, my brother, of course, was like, you couldn't have remembered it. You you weren't even. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like the anger of a middle child. (laughs) Yeah, right. The events of your life that are told to you by your parents, but you don't have an immediate sensory or emotional connection to, do they still seem to have the same emotional punch as like a first order memory? Like when you're like, oh, I definitely remember eating those wings in the second half of that game versus... You know, your mom saying, remember when you ate those wings second half of the game when you were one and a half? For background on Charles' example, please Stop. see our episode on superstition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can I just say before answering that, that one of the things we really do need to talk about is what memories are. I think that yeah. we just to get back to what Rick was saying, that we have an idea that our memory works like computer memories. Right. And obviously it does not. There was this Pixar film, I think it was a Pixar film called Inside Out. It was an animated film not too long ago where they represented in the film memories as if they were these kind of marbles that form in your experience. And then they go down a chute and they're colored in some way. They're happy memories or they're sad memories or whatever. And they go down a chute and they get deposited somewhere where either you have access to them or they fall into the pit where you don't have access to them. And that is not how memory works. That's not how memories are formed. They're not these sort of individual perfect assessments of an experience that are colored by values and then deposited in some place where we can access them exactly as we experience them. I don't know how to answer Charles's question about where to fit in memories that seem to have been constructed by other people and then given to me as if they were my own, partially because I don't even know what my own memories are. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. So Hobbes has an understanding of memory as like a wax tablet. Right. I should say like wax. Because this helps him to explain why it is that young people don't remember so well. Their wax is too liquid. (laughs) And then old people, their wax is too hard. And so you need to have just that sweet spot of softness where an impression could be made and the wax will hold it. Yeah, that tracks. Now, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think what Rick is doing is showing you why no one talked about Hobbesian epistemology. Stick to the politics, Hobbes. Stick to the politics. Okay, but wait, 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 wait. So there is something right about this, though, in that what he's bringing to the fore is an understanding that memory as an impression probably must be delinked from, but certainly can be delinked from, our ability to be aware of the memory. Mm -hmm. In other words, whether I recognize the impression or not, it's there. And for Hobbes, it's always doing stuff. It's always going to be effective whether I'm aware of it or not. And so it seems like there are almost opposed sides of memory. One is the way in which my awareness of my own past in the form of memory constitutes my identity. And the other is the form of memory which not being a part of my awareness also constitutes my identity, but as it were, beneath my recognition. 
it slips under my radar. I think that's a really good illustration because I can think of things that are learning processes. Like, for example, when I learned how to play the guitar, I now know how to play a C chord. And I might say I remember how to play a C chord, but I'm not sure that saying I remember how to play a C chord is perfectly descriptive of what I'm doing when I play a C chord. A certain chain of remembering did have to take place in order for whatever we call now muscle memory to be embedded in my guitar playing such that I can play a C chord without having to stop and remember what a C chord is. But a lot of that is forgotten and it just becomes who I am now. I don't have to remember it. And so it's interesting that people who have late stage dementia or Alzheimer's often can still play the piano or still play the guitar or still sing songs. I was going to come back to just that point. I don't play a musical instrument. I mean, I took piano lessons for a while as a child, but my teacher smelled like pee. So I stopped taking lessons. Apologies to Rick's teacher. (laughs) Yeah. He was half dead when I took piano lessons. So, But anyhow, what both of you were saying made me think a lot about language. To go back to what Lee was saying, it's not as if I have to remember what form of the verb to be agrees with a plural subject. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I guess I do have to remember that, but... I would never describe my experience of speaking English as remembering. And yet, if you contrast that then with what you're doing when you're first learning to speak a language, I really do have to remember, for example, what is the Italian word for dentist? And that does seem something more like memory. And yet, it's very clear that the memory process that helped me to come to be able to speak English is now, as Lee put it, it just really is now who I am. I think this is a good illustration of how memories constitute identity. And of course, this is the terrible phenomenon of trauma is that memories that should be suppressed are not suppressed and end up impeding the development of one's identity. So I do think that it's important to say, look, some of these things that I learned, at one point I was just remembering them, but now they are who I am and they make possible the kinds of memories that I can form and the kinds of memories that I discard. But there are other kinds of memories that if I allow them to integrate themselves into my identity in the way that memories that allow me to be more functional do, they actually impede the kind of progress that I can make as the kind of person that I think that I am. And what's interesting about that process, Lee, is that, so I started out saying that in a way, I called it filtering, but Charles Scott has a book from back in the 90s, I think, about memory. And his main argument is that what's central to memory is in fact forgetting. Mm -hmm. That if we couldn't forget, we wouldn't be able to remember. That's Nietzsche's great point, right? That we are the animals that have learned how to forget. Yeah, but the bitch about all of this (laughs) is that we're not in control of that process. We can't delete. Sometimes we are. And, you know, maybe we can circle back to the times in which because of social structures based on capitalism and patriarchy and racism, that there is a sort of attempt or a successful enforced forgetting. 
but most of the time I'm not in control of what I'm forgetting and therefore how that memory filters through the sieve of forgetfulness. That's sometimes the frustrating part about memory. And that gets back to, I think, the point that Charles was introducing, which is that memory is not an individual enterprise. <laughs> that you as an individual are always situated in a community of other memories that are serving in some way as that sieve for you. <laughs> We couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I really like Lee's point about the social nature of memory. And it really makes me think about Toni Morrison's idea of rememory, which is really brilliantly explored in her novel Beloved, where you have these formerly enslaved people who are having to reckon with their memories of their time within enslavement in the narrative. But she has this great line from one of her essays, and she says, history versus memory rememory as in recollecting and remembering as in reassembling the members of the body, the family, the population of the past. And I think about it in terms of, and we can say marginalized populations in general, or we can say specifically to African descended populations in the United States, but using memory as, I guess, a form of healing and being very selective in terms of how one wants to think about and have a relationship to the past, because it can be overwhelming. And if you don't have a mechanism by which to block, stop, forget, reassemble, give it new meaning, have a different relationship to one sense of self, then one will be undermined. So this is a topic that is very close to my heart because I wrote my dissertation on truth commissions. And as you both probably know, the most famous of those was the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, whose primary project was to, as you say, reconstitute and reassemble a memory of the nation that would make it possible for the nation to emerge as a newer, healthier, functional, multiracial nation. But what happened in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that everyone was, was invited to testify about the horrors of apartheid. And perpetrators of those horrors could trade immunity for the truth. So if they told the entire truth unedited, about what happened, about what they knew, they would not be charged for the crimes that were committed. And there's a lot of debate about this particular method, but the proponents of Truth and Reconciliation Commissions will say that the only way for the country to move forward was for it to know the truth of its past, and the truth in the sense that everyone has the same memory of the past, or at least everyone acknowledges the same true memory of this past. 
past and to move forward with an understanding that those horrors are not to be repeated. That idea that memory is fundamentally social first and secondly, fundamentally essential to the functional perpetuation of a society is hugely important. And I think also resonates with what Toni Morrison said. Sure. And in terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because I've actually done a little work on the Gachacha tribunals in Rwanda, so it's kind of Mm -hmm. very similar in nature and, and certainly not scope, but certainly in nature. And it seems that there is a necessary facticity that has to go along with that. Like we have to have the details because we're bringing this up for though people may have received immunity for coming forward with their testimony. We have to know the details because we have to understand what laws were broken and we have to understand that in order to create new laws to make sure that this does not happen in the future, creating a new sort of measure by which the society will function. But what I like about the Toni Morrison idea, which I think is the same sort of thing, is that we're talking about how do we develop a psychological way to move forward, way not to get stuck in the past that we choose not to remember, that it becomes this void of a sort that we fall into because we refuse to look at it, right? If we think about the novel, beloved, Setha remains very much so in denial of the things she did to try to escape slavery. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read the novel. It's based on the actions of Margaret Garner, an escaped enslaved person who makes it to Ohio when slave catchers come to get her. She attempts to kill her children, attempts infanticide, because the horror of existing in slavery is far worse than hers removing them from the possibility of being returned to slavery. So this character, Setha, does not want to speak it, doesn't want to think about it, and tries to live a life where she does not have to contend with that act and everything that subsequently followed that act. The disintegration of her family, marginalization from her community. So the remembering is the only way to move forward. That's the great thing about Morrison. She doesn't say this makes you a nice, shiny person anymore. She doesn't say that you're going to come out of this on the other side of embracing what happened or what you did clean and smooth. They're going to be scars, but you need those scars and we can't repress that experience anymore. So it seems to me that we've been moving in two directions. And Charles, I think you just put your finger on what connects these two directions. So one direction is that we as a society or we as this culture, we as this group rely on one another in order for each of us to have memories. And so it's as if the society, as if the people has a memory. And then the memory that my people have is also a huge part of what constitutes my self-identity. And one of the things I've been thinking about for the past few years is the way in which structures, particularly structures of oppression, come to be individualized by members in a society, and that that individualization is often psychological. And so the symptom there that an individual might experience is actually a symptom of perhaps a social cultural memory. And that might be traumatic, in which case then a memory of that would perhaps be helpful. But on the other side, from the dominant society, there's a memory going on all the time that is in fact quite nefarious. And so I like, Charles, you're bringing Morrison in here and insisting that look, this happens and this has to happen. That doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah, I think that at the individual level, it is absolutely necessary that some things are forgotten 
just in order for us to function. Like we would not be able to function if our memories actually functioned like computer memories. We need the filter in order for the world to make sense. And also just recalling the point that Morrison makes, it's also necessary sometimes with traumatic experiences to forget them literally in order to move on. But I do think that at the societal level, the imperative ought to be not to forget horrors, not to forget traumas, and to keep them in the forefront. One, I don't think that societies as a whole experience trauma in the same way that individuals do. And secondly, because I think the memory of trauma is experienced by societies can often be progressive, whereas more often for individuals, it is debilitating. I'm not sure I think Morrison is saying that it's important to forget. I kind of feel like she's saying the opposite, but the way in which one remembers is very important. So in terms of the quote that I read, the beginning is history versus memory. And we can read history as being the official formal recounting of particular events and eras and epochs versus memory, which is this much more interpersonal, this more social, more subjective way of perceiving the path. And she goes on, and I love this, she says, I, I cannot trust the literature and the sociology of other people to help me know the truth of my own cultural sources. And to me, that sort of really speaks to what Rick is getting at in terms of the ways in which you have this individuation, the ways in which this particular person, their experiences, really is an indicator, a representative of this larger circumstance or experience that this group shares. And this certainly reminds me of last season's discussion with Charles McKinney of Who's History. And if see the ways in which the right wing's hysterical, breathy critique of critical race theory is an attempt to rearrange, adjust, narrow, sanitize history, then memory and the type of memory that Morrison talks about, this communal memory, this racial identity memory, this experiential memory that a group of people have, is the counterbalance, is the way to outweigh and to fight back against this history. That's a really helpful correction. And I think when I earlier said forget that that was the wrong word, it should have been, as you say, re-memorialize, re-memory it. Yeah. Forget the memory as a traumatic memory, as a memory that is debilitating but to re-memory it as a trauma that allows one to move forward. And I don't want to trivialize the context in which Toni Morrison is talking about this, but this does kind of bring to mind the idea of grudges, like when you hold a grudge. That is a holding on to a memory with a certain kind of evaluation to that memory, which is to say that I remember this thing as harmful to me, as hurtful to me, and I'm going to not only remember the thing that happened, but also keep with it, like perpetuate the evaluation that I had of that. And that is going to impede my relationship with the person with whom I shared this memory. That seems to me one thing that as individuals, we ought to work against doing, right? It's not functional. But as societies, I think that the same thing doesn't apply. Like, I think as societies, we do have to hold on to memories and their valuation sometimes in order to go forward in a functional way. It seems to me there is one similarity between the memory on the individual level and memory on the social level. And that is that on the individual level, we have this phenomenon that we call gaslighting. And that's a way of someone telling me that what I remember isn't real, or it didn't happen that way, or I'm making it up. 
And I think there is a very real way in which, on a social level, this is in fact how history gets constructed, is through a number of gaslighting operations. And to go back to Charles McKinney's conversation with us, one of the things he seems to be most interested in is stop the gaslighting, people. Just stop the gaslighting. There is a kind of gaslighting in relation to memory, both on an individual level and on a social level. I think that it's personally psychologically damaging on an individual level. It's deadly in many ways on the social level, including the phenomenon of social death as well as other forms. Can I just say, though, that, for example, if I were to say, let's put this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the middle of this park, as was the case in my city, Memphis. If I say, let's put this in the town square because we need to remember the Confederacy, right, the lost cause. On the one hand, I think that Charles McKinney is entirely right. That's gaslighting. But to call the people who are in support of that memorial, of that memory, as being our societal memory, to call their project a project of social memory is an inapt description. Because what they're doing is what I would call establishing a sub-social memory, right? A memory of a certain slice of society. Like, they have to separate themselves from the whole of society to say, this is society's memory, and the society's memory to which they are referring is a slice, it's a subsection of the society. Well, so, I mean, I smell what you're stepping in, but I, I, I think there, there is a problem. And to bring this back to a kind of personal analogy, you know, I said that my mom and the rest of my family constantly says, like, how do you remember this? And at some points when they question whether it actually happened or not, my sister might remember it in one way. I remember it in another way. There is a family memory of this. And that's just as much a memory as my memory. I'm a little worried that you could say that you're not participating in the activity of creating a social memory just because you're a racist fuck. I want to remember that moment also, in a way, as we go forward. In other words, memories are just like that. Sometimes they're cast in one way and sometimes they're cast in another way and it's good or it's bad. And just as I'm not in control of how that filtering happens, I think a large part of what we are contesting right now is that that's your memory, that's not our memory. And maybe that's what you were saying, Lee, and I just got there in a more roundabout way, but that it is construction of social memory. Well, I, I suppose maybe the gap between our accounts here is between what counts as the society. So in the lost cause, for example, what you're describing is a social memory where the rememberers would describe society as white people's society. This is why I was saying earlier that I would call that a like sub-social memory. The contrary to that, people who want to give a fuller more accurate account of race relations in the United States in the last 150 years, their memory would also include the lost cause. And so I think would not be described as a sub-social memory. It would be described as a social memory. So if I were making an argument, let's take down the Nathan Bedford Forrest statue. It does not represent our society. It represents a subsection of our society. 
my argument to take that down also includes an acknowledgement of what you were saying was the social memory, whereas yours does not include mine. So I think in that sense, again, I want to say that it is beneficial for societies to remember traumas and remember them as traumatic in order to move forward, whereas for individuals it's not, and that it's only in the instance where people who are constructing a social memory are suppressing traumas as traumatic that those memories are not actually social memories. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. I think I agree with Lee in that part of the fact that you're putting the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest up in the middle of Memphis is because you don't want to talk about the birth of the Klan or you don't want to talk about the Fort Pillow massacre. Whereas the people who want to take down that statue want to talk about all those things. For historians like Charles McKinney and people who are doing that work of bringing back and creating a much more fuller and complex historical picture, Forrest has to be viewed in this other way. Not as some hero of the lost cause, but as a genocidal prick important because if we're talking about the love of the individual and what memories we choose and what things we forefront in our consciousness, if there's an intentionality to some degree, then we're trying to be and present ourselves or think of ourselves as a certain type of person when we valorize certain memories, hold on to certain memories, and let other memories fall into whatever that Pixar void is, where the marbles go. And the same thing is happening at the social level. We're saying this is who we believe ourselves to be as a society. This is who we believe ourselves to be as a community. We want that memory or that self-awareness to be the grounding of our actions going forward, even if those actions may be perceived or are racist because we're foregrounding forest and what forest represents for us in this particular selective recollection. So, Charles, you just put me in a position to understand what my actual hesitation was before. I guess it's not about social memory versus subsocial memory. I'm a little suspicious of how much intentionality we as individuals exercise over memory. And then there would also be a social analogy to that. Uh, just to put it in the most blunt possible way, I'm as concerned about structural injustice as I am about intentional injustice. And I think that thinking about social memory in a way that doesn't forefront consciousness and intentionality helps us get a better handle on the ways in which structures are effective and therefore also are involved in memory, both individual and social. Yeah, and I just want to say, Rick, in that formulation of your point, I wholeheartedly agree with you. (laughs) I think that you're exactly right, that the way that we think about how intentionality at an individual level is operative in the memories that we retain, repress, or rememory is important. I suppose I would use an example like this. So let's imagine that the three of us are a community. I mean, we are. We have our podcasts. And let's say that the three of us have a fight that hurts one or more of us. So as individuals, we could hold on to that, hold on to that traumatic memory as painful and resent it. And as a community, we would not be able to move forward. Whether one or two or all of us did that, we would not be able to move forward as a community. But if individually, we said, I'm going to intentionally put this aside. I'm going to re-memory it, right? I'm going to reassemble this memory. Then individually, we intentionally could. 
But I think that as our community moves forward, it is important that it moves forward with the memory of that trauma. As often is the case, I feel like somewhere in there, I started vehemently agreeing with you. And I don't know how it, it turned out to come out as a disagreement. Except I think, Lee, what you're describing on an individual level would be a certain kind of therapeutic memory. Yeah, but that's what re-memory is, isn't it? As it functions in Morrison's work, it's not therapeutic in the sense of go right. to a therapist and, you know, talk through your problems and so on. It's therapeutic in the sense of as both of you have put it in different ways during this conversation, it helps you go forward, not by denying the reality of what you remember, but finding a way with that memory to go forward. I completely agree. Again, vehemently agree. Yeah. And, I think that, <laughs> and I think that it is what Foucault would call a practice of the self. It's not what, and I remember this from the culture wars of the 90s, sort of right-wing critics of multicultural history would call feel-good history. Yeah, it's not wellness yeah, it's training. it's not wellness training. It's not feel-good <laughs> history, right? Because, you know, Morrison, if you know her work, these are people who they keep going, but there's some damage there. They've just got to figure out with this knowledge and this way of thinking about themselves, how do I continue? So I'm hesitant to use the term wellness because I don't want the therapeutic implications of that at all. Hold on. I do want to retain the therapeutic without the wellness because I think things can be therapeutic and you not be well after them. That's right. true. Yes, having spent a lot of money on therapists, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> The point I'm drawing from Lee's earlier formulation, it makes me think about, because this is what, once again, the critics of this type of much more expansive and honest historical reckoning are arguing that there's an ideology behind it, that mm -hmm. you hate white people or you hate America or you're a wild-eyed lefty. I think ideology sometimes is okay if the intent is to how do we create and I hate this term, but I love this term because it's a great formulation. How do we create a more perfect union? And if in order mm -hmm. to do that, we have to take into account the full story and the honest recollection of why we may have these contemporary sort of disparities, challenges, problems, tensions, then if that's the ideological goal, then that's fine. Because I don't think there's any such thing as no ideology whatsoever. Every action, every state, every belief has a power-based direction and goal that it's seeking. Well, and I think there's a way in which what frequently gets called ideology is just what I referred to earlier as a kind of filtering. So just as we can't remember without unremembering or forgetting, we can't experience everything, and so our experience is always filtered. So you can't act as if I'm experiencing this and then I interpret it. You can't even experience it without already that being taken into the wholeness of who you are. Other things belong to that memory, and that belongs to experience as such. And the problem is, like in many things, I would say there's an unmarked signifier. And that is that what is not ideological is white, cis, hat, truism, and everything else is ideological. <laughs> Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson, 
the doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. I want to actually talk about the instances in which people are losing a grasp on their own memory. So, you know, this is going to be the sad part of our episode because I do think we cannot talk about memory without talking about dementia, Alzheimer's, and other forms of late-stage cognitive decline. One of my greatest fears as I age is to get to this point where I can't remember who I am, I can't remember people I love, and I can't remember important things that are necessary for me to be able to function in life. So I suppose maybe the first question I have is, have either of you been up close and personal with memory loss? Yes, yes. I've had older relatives who've suffered what we now call dementia. And I as well have experience with it. And one of the things that's interesting, and this goes, I think, all the way back to the opening of our conversation this week, is I can only imagine, I don't really have the experience, I can only imagine how frustrating it is as long as you're aware that you can't remember something that is, as you put it, Lee, important to you and that you ought to remember. And so I think there is an awful lot of what psychologists call confabulation that goes on, that when you can't remember, you make something up. And then just to see people that you love, how this infuriates them so much the fury arises, as far as my experience goes, from a sense that you are losing yourself. Yeah, so two things. One is that I had a student in my medical ethics class last semester who works in a nursing home, in an assisted living facility that only attends to patients with dementia and Alzheimer's. And one of the things that she said was that, in her experience, Alzheimer's patients tend to go in one of two directions. They either become super sweet and childlike or they become angry and mean. And I can see how both of those would happen. I think that right now, being of sound mind and semi-sound body, that if I were to lose my memory, I think that right now my response to that would be to be paranoid and angry and aggressive and mean towards everyone around me. But I could also see how it could be possible that if you start to lose your memory, that the world becomes kind of wondrous and you approach it as a child would. So it's interesting to see, first of all, these different responses to that phenomenon of aging. But the other thing I wanted to say is that there was this really great film It had Julianne Moore in it. I can't remember what year it was in, but it was called Still Alice. And it was a true story about this woman, Alice Howland, who was a linguistics professor or an English professor at Columbia University, who had a pretty rare case of early onset Alzheimer's. So she tries to get ahead by leaving herself notes all over the house and putting a recurring sort of quiz on her phone. But the moment in the film that I want to note is that she puts this quiz on her phone and sets it such that if she fails the quiz, so she can't remember, like, what's your mother's name? What day is it? Who's the president? Etc. If she fails the quiz, 
it gives her these instructions that say, go to your upstairs dresser drawer, look in the back of the top left drawer and take all the pills. So she's mm. kind of set it up so that she will be able to end her life should that eventuality occur. However, in between the last time she passed the quiz and the next time she failed the quiz, she loses her phone. And it's just like for a few weeks. And so when she finds her phone again, she's at the point where it gives her the quiz and she can't pass the quiz, but she also can't really understand the instructions that follow. And first of all, this was the most horrifying horror film I've ever seen in my life. It was absolutely terrifying to watch. But I remember thinking, how can you set up a scenario in which you don't find yourself in what to me would be the worst possible conditions at the end of your life? And I hate the fact that we live in a country where we can't do that for ourselves or no, for that's, the people that's that we the, love. That's the, the powerful and the tragic part. Thinking about this, I mean, we've been having conversations the whole episode about memory and the construction of identity and the understanding of the self, be it the individual subjective self or the social historical self. And to, to see which parts of yourself fall away and then of the multiple possibilities of the self which remain. Like I said, I agree with that. My experience has been people that I've encountered, they go either very, very sweet and childlike or very, very angry and mean as if they're stuck on all the most bitter and angry part of their experiences as people. What's fearful is that there's so little control over who one is in, in the midst of that decline. Right? It's almost like this existential sweepstakes, this gamble in terms of who shows up at the end of your life, which part of you shows up. Is it this terrible person who can't find wonder and joy and happiness anymore? Or is it this other person? So Yeah, it's a moment in which you're no longer able to take the reins over this filtering, this forgetting that is crucial to memory. Whereas like today, I might be remembering something that happened in the past and the way I'm remembering it is something like a trauma. But I could still today do work on that and perform a rememory and so on. The moment where that no longer becomes possible is a moment where then, as you put it, Charles, I mean, that's a dice roll from then on. Who I am existentially, who I am in my own self-definition is completely out of my control. Yeah, and this is where I think I might almost fully subscribe to Locke's theory about the continuity of memory being a fundamental condition, a necessary condition of identity. I think that if I found myself in the late stages of Alzheimer's, that I would now, the me now, would want to say to my loved ones, I have already died. Like Lee Johnson has already died. Whoever that is, is not me. And so whatever moral obligations you felt to me, are not to that person. Like maybe you still, for whatever, you know, moral or religious reasons, feel like you don't want to pull the plug on this person, but understand that this person Noelle, is forget not forget the sour, me. I'll just have the whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even need a rock no, now. Just put the bottle on the bar. <laughs> just put the damn bottle on the bar. But I mean, I, you know, I know we're joking, but I do think that this is an important thing to talk about because especially if we have any Gen Z listeners, like our Gen Z listeners are probably going to spend their most productive years taking care of their parents and probably grandparents. 
And that's going to be very expensive. It's going to be emotionally taxing. And my guess is there won't yet be any aggressive push for legislation to ease that pain at all. That's still a long way off. And so I think that we really do have to talk about who are you dealing with there? And this is a fundamentally philosophical question, right? Like this is not a medical question. This is a philosophical question. Do you think that you still need to visit your grandmother every day or visit your mother or father every day once they're in the stages of late Alzheimer's or late dementia? I mean, are you even visiting the person that you think that you're visiting? That, I mean... I feel like I'm I'm being like incredibly dark here, but I think that these are really important questions that people need to prepare themselves for. I would say there are two points. The first is this certainly reminds me of the Hobbes metaphor about memories being implanted at certain stages of the receptivity of the wax of one's consciousness or one's intelligence. So if I have this condition of dementia, I can't remember what happened yesterday. I can't tell you who the president is, but I know what I did when I was three. Right. Right. So it's like these deep phonic memories that one can hold on to. And that makes me think about Thomas Reed's example about the young officer and then the general. So when Lee, you ask, is that still your grandmother in the nursing home? Yeah, because despite the disconnect between the general and the child, that conduit of the young officer is still there. So it's still sort of the same person, but it's the same person in a different form. Now, we can talk about the emotional need of the grandchildren or the children who continue to visit and take care of the parent. But just that's a separate question. But I think, yeah, that is the same person, but one sees them in a different formulation, a different modality of their self. See, I don't think that they're the same person anymore. And I just want to apologize in advance to anybody who I have to take care of in the late stages of their of their memory. But <laughs> uh, are you going to call them a different name? I know I knew you no. was Fred, but now you're Harvey. A little too into <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I don't think that no. it's the same person anymore. And I think that, again, going back to the brave officer thought experiment, I mean, what connects the child, the lieutenant, and the brave officer? according to Thomas Reed, is this community of memory. I think what we're talking about in this instance, though, is a state in late dementia or late Alzheimer's where even communal memory doesn't reconstitute a continuity of memory in the Lockean sense. So even if I were to say to my grandmother, I know you don't remember who I am, but hey, I'm your granddaughter. And, you know, you remember Mac? Papa, my grandfather, he was your husband, and my father, Mike, is your son. Even saying all that to her is not going to reconstitute her as the person that I knew. So I think in that sense, she's gone. Like, she's gone and irrecoverably gone. Yeah, there's a selfishness, and I grant that, and I embrace that. Wait, 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 selfishness is who? I'm being selfish? No, 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 not you. But the people who want to attempt to reconstitute the identity of that person, that loved one, grandma, granddad, whoever, through their constant attempt to, right? Because there's a lot of, don't you remember? So that is for the visitor. That is for the people who will be left behind when this person passes away. So I actually do not want to get into the conversation of the ethics of that. But if it's unfair, it's a necessary unfairness because this is also part of the grieving process. Now, you may be extending that because you're hesitant to let go as quickly or as soon as you maybe should. But it's a necessary sadness and tragedy. I I mean, if I could, I kind of do want to get into the ethics of this because in my view, and I'm anticipating that either or both of you may not agree, but in my view... 
at that point, it is okay to pull the plug. And I mean, even with a fully physically healthy person, that it's okay to pull the plug. That that person is, in my view, the equivalent of dead. That person is a zombie. Well, I'm not going to go there. But I agree that that opportunity should be there for those who seek it and choose it. And it should be there for people in advance of their reaching that point themselves. Yeah. In an advanced directive, you should be able to say that if I'm in this condition... Well, at, uh, let's let's not beat around the bush. We're right. not talking about pulling the plug. We're physician talking assisted about suicide, pushing yeah. the drugs. Physician assisted death. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to say here, right here on the record on our podcast, those are my wishes. I do not want to be kept alive once I stop being Lee M. Johnson. So at what Patreon level oh does anyone get to pull the plug? At this point, like literally like 50 cents a month and I'll give that. I'll give those rights to you. Right. right. 50 cents a month for one month and you can have those rights. Right. This is a casket driver. I want to go back to something Charles said before we got into the ethics, though, because I think it's a really important point. The tragedy in those who we love getting to this stage of dementia or Alzheimer's is that as their memory of themselves slips away, as their memory of us slips away, our memory of them and who they were and our memory of our relationship isn't equally erased. Yeah, and in fact, it's being re-memoried in a way that we find traumatic. This, by the way, is why whenever I go to a funeral of someone I love and it's an open casket funeral, I never visit the casket. That is not the last memory I want to have of someone that I love. And I think that is what happens when people get into these stages of advanced Alzheimer's and dementia or any kind of cognitive decline is that you begin forming new memories of your relationship. The relationship between you and that person dramatically changes and you cannot erase those memories, those last memories. We started out with this conversation about memories and the early formation of identity around memory. And then we moved into the discussion of the sociality of memory. And now here we are at looking at what it means when the deconstruction of the self as a result of memory loss. And, it, you know, we don't normally do this. It wasn't intentional, but we've perfectly mimicked the life arc, I think, of identity through memory yeah. in this conversation and really unraveled a lot of very interesting questions and things that, Right, we're just not going to end when this conversation is over. And I hope for the listeners as well, you also are able to meditate and think deeply about these issues. Because to be honest, most of us, if not all of us, will confront these questions. Yeah, and thank God we recorded this so everyone can remember us at our best and drunkest. <laughs> <laughs> So, Noel is making last call right now. Maybe, Charles, you should call our designated driver. Oh, shit. We don't have a designated driver. Listen, I know those of you who are already Patreons, first, thank you, patrons on Patreon. And I'm sorry you get to hear this all the time. But for those of you who aren't, this podcast we do for free, but it also costs us money. And we have a Patreon page at patreon.com 
backslash. It's important that you say backslash. Sorry. Because <laughs> without the backslash, nobody would know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. But we really would appreciate patrons at the designated driver level. And I'll tell you why this is a benefit to you is because at the end of every episode so far, we either have to call a cab or we can call on one of our designated drivers. And so if you sign up at the designated driver level, then we will shout you out at the end of the episode as our driver. And, you know, you don't have to come and pick us up. This is all just a conceit, right? Unless I'm actually drunk in your town. If I'm actually drunk in your town, you get the privilege of pouring me into your back seat. So since we don't have a new designated driver this week, Charles, would you uh, yep, arrange I'm already on that, us? and the Lyft driver is here. All right, Rick. His name is Rick, too. So how fortuitous. Hey, Rick, can you remember that? I, I think I'll remember his name. His name is Mazda, right? His name is Mazda. He's driving a Rick. Lordy Bagordy, you guys. All right, shotgun. <laughs> Bye. Bye.